find that book. It's not a book we normally... People are not normally going through that book in the sermons of series. Probably not the first book you run to during your devotional time. It is in the Old Testament, however. And if you go to the New Testament, find Matthew, and then just start flipping back some books, you will stumble upon Micah. Now, y'all are laughing, but some of y'all can't find it. You, I know it. So don't be laughing. In the book of Micah, chapter number 5. Micah, chapter number 5. If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word or you don't have the app, the Bible app on your phone, download it, first of all, after service. But we'll also have it on the screen for you. Micah chapter 5, and we'll begin with verse number 2. It will be on the screen, and so you can join along with us there. Micah chapter number 5, beginning with verse number 2. Our custom here at the Bridge Church is to stand for the reading of God's holy word out of honor and reverence to his word. So we are asking that if you are willing and able, please stand on your feet for the reading of God's holy word. Micah chapter number five, beginning with verse number two. And here's what reads the word of the Lord. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places. Then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. And the land of Nimrod at his entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Verse number seven. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces. 
there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Verse number 10, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you, and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seat. Micah was a prophet of the Lord. He ministered through the kingly reign of King Hezekiah. During the time of Micah's ministry, the kingdom was divided. Micah's ministry was primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. As a prophet of the Lord, his job was to communicate to God's people of what thus saith the Lord. I've told you before, but I'll remind you again. The prophet's job was to be God's covenant enforcer. In other words, his responsibility as a prophet of the Lord was to remind the people of God of the terms of the covenant that they entered into with God. Here's basic covenant language. God says to the people of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. In that covenant, God makes promises. He gives them assurance of what he will do for them as their king. But in any covenant, there were also terms that the people had responsibility to fulfill. And God gives these terms to his people so that they know this is how you live under the reign of King Yahweh. This is how you enter into blessing and peace and rest with a most holy God. And so God's prophet, his responsibility is to come to the people of God, remind them of the terms of the covenant, and call them to keep their word, to live holy lives before a most holy God. Micah is now speaking God's word to a people who have forsaken and forgotten the terms of the covenant. The, 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 the people of Judah, they are now spiritually and morally bankrupt. You don't believe me? Let me set the context for you. Micah begins to speak to the people, and he condemns the nation, her rulers, and her leaders. In chapter 1, 
He says that Samaria, the capital city, is the center of idolatry. Term of the covenant, you shall have no other gods before me. But yet they have idols, other gods. And that therefore, the Lord says, I plan to make this city a heap of ruins. Hang with me for the bad news. We'll get to the good news. In, in chapter 2, the prophet Micah, he confronts wealthy oppressors because they were improperly seizing land. He says, you take it by fraud and violence. It's in the book. And this, friends, is an affront to a most holy God. We know this because the Lord says, for what you've done, I'm going to reward your evil with evil. Later on, in chapter 2, Micah tells them that God is angry because some have unlawfully evicted women from their pleasant homes. So even in 700 B.C., we see that a just God demands fair and equitable housing. It's in the text. I didn't make this up. A couple of verses later in chapter 2, God, through the prophet Micah, condemns the preachers. He calls them false prophets. Because you preach uh, uh, joy and wine and alcohol. In other words, just be merry. Things are great. You don't have to turn back to this most holy God. In other words, he condemns the preachers, the prophets, because they are telling lies to the people. They refuse to, to call out their sin and convict them for not fulfilling the terms of the covenant. And God calls them out. He says, you are nothing but false prophets. Chapter 3, Micah speaks directly to the leaders of Israel. Here's what it says, according to the New Living Translation. You are supposed to know right from wrong, but you are the very ones who hate good and love evil. You skin my people alive. And tear their flesh from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh. Strip off their skin and break their bones. You chop them up like meat for the cooking pot. Then you've got the nerve. That's Brandon Reddick translation. Here's what he says. You beg the Lord for help in time of trouble. You have the nerve to be an unjust people, and then have the nerve to say, God bless Judah. Oh, this is my Christmas sermon. I'm sorry. The, and he says, the, the prophet says to the leaders of Israel, do you really expect him to answer after the evil you have done? Be mad at Micah, not Brandon. He says, he won't even look at you. The, the prophet, he, he keeps going. He's got more. He speaks to these same leaders in Israel. He says, let me lay another charge against the people of God and the surrounding nations. The, the prophet continues. 
He's saying, you promise peace to those who give you food, and you declare war on those who refuse to feed you. In other words, these leaders were accepting bribes and kickbacks in return for provision. And in return, we'll, we'll protect you. But if I don't get my kickback, then I'm not going to leave you with justice and integrity. And so in these first three chapters, God lays out his charges and his accusations against the nation, the rulers, and the leaders. And the surrounding nations. That's chapters one through three. But thank God for chapter four. Because chapter four begins with a word of hope. God promises that all the days won't be like these days. Because there's going to be a new period of time. The last days. Which will be characterized by peace and prosperity. And so then we find ourselves in today's text in chapter 5. And the text opens, we're still in a section of hope. It begins, first of all, with this promised ruler. Look with me in chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, at the promised ruler. Here's how verse 2 reads. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. Th this verse in chapter 5, verse 2, begins with the conjunction, but. It, we know it's a word of contrast. And so we know that whenever we see a contrasting conjunction, we have to see what's before it to see what's being contrasted. In order to see that, you've got to go back to verse 1. In verse 1, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Here it is. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What Micah is doing is, he con is he's contrasting two kings. The current king will be humiliated. He's going to be struck with the rod on his face. In other words, he's so weak and feeble that he can't even protect his face. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, you've got a different kind of king. And so the first thing we learn about this promised ruler is regarding his purpose. The first thing we learn about this promised promise ruler is his purpose. Look at verse 2. The second part of verse 2. Here's how it reads in the English Standard Version. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. The literal rendering of this section in the original language, is this is how it reads. From you for me shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. Rewind, press play. From you for me shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. One of the things that 
the read, that, that the writers would do in the Hebrew and Greek language is that they would take certain words and move them from the natural word order and move them to the very front of the cause or the sentence for the purpose of emphasis. So he moves this prepositional cause. He starts, he says, from you, here it is, for me. Completely out of order. And so what he's doing here, the, the reader, the author, the writer, he's showing us that the purpose of this promised ruler is for God. In other words, this promise coming ruler who will be like any king that Israel has ever had, his purpose for coming is for God's benefit. This, this king that is to come, this king that is to be born is for God's praise. The purpose of this promised ruler, by the way, let me just spoil the whole sermon, it's Jesus. <laughs> the purpose for this Jesus king coming is for the glory of God. Friends, my simple point here this morning is that the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, God putting on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, in other words, Christmas is for the glory of God. Let me see if you'll clap on this sentence. It, Christmas, is not for us. Ooh, y'all ain't coming back next year. Now, 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 we are beneficiaries. But when Jesus came, Christmas, it was for God's glory. Okay, let me walk you through the story. God created his first people, Adam and Eve, for his glory. Their job, their task, their purpose in life was to worship him. To glorify God. But they sought their own will versus the will of God. And so now, from our, from our distant ancestors, Adam and Eve, we get a nature called sin. A sin nature. And here's what the Bible says in Romans 3.23. All have sinned, here it is, and come short of the glory of God. Since we fall short of the glory, then none of us could fulfill the, the, our mandate to give God glory in its fullness. We cannot meet the terms of God's holiness, so he had to send someone who could meet God's glorious standard. Who did he send? His son, Jesus Christ. Again, it was for the glory of God. Friends, enjoy Christmas. I'll celebrate it however you want to. But Christmas is about the glory of God. Watch this. Let me tell you a quick story. Let me tell you how twisted we have become, even as a nation. I don't know if this person was a believer or an unbeliever. My, my wife had at her school, she was telling me this, uh, they had an ugly Christmas sweater party. This is my wife, in case y'all didn't know. My wife does not have one ugly sweater in her closet. <laughs> so, the lady who likes to shop, I mean, the lady who's fashionable, did not wear an ugly Christmas sweater, and so she didn't participate in the ugly Christmas sweater party. 
some kind of way, some individual told her, they made the connection that because she didn't have on an ugly Christmas sweater, she doesn't celebrate Christmas. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's really going to mess you up. I, I'm telling the whole finance team, the offering going to be real low today after this sermon. My wife and I, made, you guys know this, but some of you don't know this. My wife and I made the decision from the time our first son, our, well, my only son, my first child was born that we were not going to indulge in buying gifts. Not because we think it's sin, not because we think it's evil, just our own personal decision. You can, I'm not saying don't buy gifts. Do whatever you want to. I go to work. This is back before the bridge. They want to know, what are you getting your kids for Christmas? Well, my response, nothing. Their question, so you don't celebrate Christmas. You see what we've done? We've equated celebrating Christmas to ugly Christmas sweaters and materialism. Self-glory. I'm not against buying gifts. For the record, I'm on camera saying it right now. I am not against buying gifts for your loved ones, for friends, whatever. Actually, my, my family does buy gifts. We just buy gifts and we adopt those who are in need. So I'm not against buying gifts. But that should not be the purpose and the point of Christmas. And the problem is that even in the church, we've, we've been so infiltrated by the culture that we forgot what Christmas is all about. If there's not a wreath up, a tree up, gifts under the, uh, under the tree, you ought to still be able to show up on Sunday morning and say, we worship you, Emmanuel, because this is about God's glory. purpose of Christmas is for the glory of God. And friends, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This ought to bring us back to focus on God's glory and the embodiment of glory is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus was God's glory on display. When he became the person of human flesh. That's his person. That's really the point I wanted to make so we can, the worship team can come back up. Not quite. I got at least 20 more minutes. <laughs> so we move from his purpose to his person. What do we learn about his person? The first thing the text tells us, he speaks to Bethlehem. He personifies Bethlehem and he says, from you. In other words, Jesus, this promised king who is going to make all things right that all other kings could not. He will be born from Bethlehem. This is how the text describes Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem was an insignificant place. Too small to even be listed in all the lands and towns when they were distributing property under leadership of Joshua. It's nowhere. 
And God says, from you, Bethlehem, from you, the most insignificant or one of the most insignificant places on the map will come the most significant person to ever live. Why? Because there was nothing deserving of Bethlehem to why she should be chosen. Ooh, I feel like preaching this morning. There would be no reason for Bethlehem to boast as to why she should be the place where the Savior of the world would be born. It was all God's grace. If you're a follower of Christ, then it is evident that you are chosen by God. And like Bethlehem, it's not because you deserved it. It's not because you earned it. It's all because of the grace of God. Somebody, you may be here today and you are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You you have not surrendered to him for forgiveness of sin so that you can be right with God. And and the Christmas reminds us that Bethlehem is a place that was undeserving. And unworthy. And you may be here today feeling like you are Bethlehem. You're undeserving of God's love, unworthy of God's love. But Bethlehem reminds us that God's grace is so wide and it's so deep that no matter who you are, God will make you worthy based on the worthiness of his son, Jesus Christ. He, he, this, this king. We're still talking about this person. He's from Bethlehem, an undeserving place. But it says his origins are in the distant past. Now, scholars are all over the place here. Some say that this refers all the way back to eternity past. That that Christ came. He was thought of, and this was all a part of God's plan, all the way back from eternity. He, he comes, he's an eternal being. And to that I say amen. But remember, context is king. Now, if you want that to be your interpretation, it's good. You're still on good biblical ground and theological ground. But the context would probably show us that when the text says his origins are in the distant past, they're referring to King David and even his father, Jesse. Remember, Jesus, he will be the stump. David and Jesse, the trees have been cut down, but Jesus is still there, the stump. That's what Isaiah would say. And so the point here of this person's, his origins come from the very person of David, by the way, who was born in Bethlehem. The city of David is how it's known. Preacher, what's the significance of this besides you just telling us that you studied this week? Because remember, God made a covenant with David. And he told David that he was going to give him a son that would be king forever. Maybe the only king forever. And so what Christmas reminds us is that God keeps his word. 
in Jesus, the promise that he made to David was fulfilled. God keeps his word. We see his person. We see his purpose. But then the text also tells us about this ruler's position. Verses 4 through 6. It says, from Bethlehem, for, for God will come one who would be a ruler. He would be a king above all kings. Not only would be would he just be, he wouldn't be any kind of ruler. But verse 4 says, he will be a shepherd. The failure of the kings after David was that they failed to shepherd God's people. They let them go astray after false gods, after idols. They did not love them well. They did not care for them. They did not protect them. But this, this baby Jesus, he would be a shepherd that would lead, guide, feed, and protect his people. He would be the complete antithesis, the opposite of Israel's present leader. Remember, Micah has already called out the leaders of Israel. They were awful shepherds. And the good news of Christmas is that our king is the shepherd king. The text says everything that he accomplishes, it won't be by his own power, but he will rule and shepherd in the strength of the Lord. He's a ruler. He's a shepherd. Verse 4 and 5 teaches us that he's also a peacemaker. Here's how it reads at the end of verse 4, in the first line of verse 5. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Friends, that's the power and the hope of Christmas. Jesus Christ became our peace. Christ is the mediator of our peace. And maybe you're not shouting right now because you didn't realize that you needed peace with God. Remember, we inherit a sinful nature from our parents, Adam and Eve. And because we have this sinful nature, we are rebels. We throw our fist up at our creator and say, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it our way. We've had the privilege and the pleasure of having a baby in our home this week. And one thing she reminded me of is that we don't have to be taught how to want our way. When she wants something, she lets us know. No matter what time of the morning it is. And we, we are the same way to our Heavenly Father with our sin nature. God, I know what you want me to do, but I want to do it this way. 
And God says that is an act of war. And we are hostiles, enemies to our creator. And the only way for us to be reconciled to our maker, to our creator, to our most holy and righteous God is through Jesus Christ. That baby boy who was born in a manger. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Romans 5 says, because of Jesus, we now have peace with God. I wish I could preach this like I felt it. Because we'd all be Pentecostals right now. Let's move on. My last point. We have the promised ruler. But then finally... Verses 7 through 15, we're told of the preserved remnant. The preserved remnant. Now, I'm reading verses 7 through 15, and you're probably wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Because we talk about having a merry Christmas and glad tidings. But yet all I talked about was destruction and vengeance, and, and anger. And you're probably wondering, what in the world has gotten into Brandon's mind? He should have stopped at verse 6 and let us go home. <laughs> Friends, Christmas should not only be a time where we look back at the coming of Christ, but it should focus us, it, it should require us to look forward to the second coming of Christ. And that too is a reason to celebrate for the people of God. And for some, it's a reason to be in fear. Because for some, he's going to be a judge that he sentences to death and destruction. But for the people of God, he will receive them and to their eternal rest with him. And so this second section focus us, focuses our mind on the second coming of Christ. He came first to die on a cross for the glory of God. But he's coming again. And he won't be treated like any common criminal. He won't be treated like any, any, like the worst criminal to ever live. When he comes back the second time, he's going to come back as, with honor and glory. The exalted one. So the first thing he says is, he opens by saying, verse 7, the remnant of Jacob, the people of God, the, 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 those who remain, who have not been cut off because of their disobedience. God preserves a number of people for his glory. It says, in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. In other words, the point of this verse, when it talks about dew, and everything, and, and mist, both of those come 
not from human accomplishment, but from the very hand of God. So these people are going to be preserved, not because of their own power, but because of the power of God. Now, what will this preserved remnant do? I'm glad you asked. Two things. First of all, they will be instruments of punishment. Verse 8 says that they will be like a lion. They will tear in pieces. Enemies will be destroyed. Oh, you actually should be shouting right now. Because we have one one primary enemy, that great deceiver and adversary, Satan, the devil. And the remaining people of God, we will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And so God's preserved remnant will be instruments of divine punishment. God will use them to destroy their enemies. Not only will they be instruments of punishment, but from this preserved remnant, idolatry will be purged. Verses 10 through 15. And that day, declares the Lord, Verse 10, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your char chariots. Why would God do that? Because oftentimes it's easier to put our trust in things that we see and in things that we can control. The, the horses and chariots were symbols of military power. Some trust in horses and some in chariots. But our job is to trust in the Lord. And so God says, I, I'm going to remove all these things that you've put your trust in and that have caused you to, to, to go to be led astray from me so that you trust in me and me alone. So I'm going to remove all military power from you so that you realize that you don't have to put your trust in the things of the world, but your trust in me. Verse 12, he says, I'm also going to cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more fortune tellers. In other words, no, there, there, no more magic, no more witchcraft. You need to trust in me and me alone. Verse 13 he says, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. This, friends, is what we do when we are in control. We create things for us to idolize and worship and serve. So we need help from without, help from, from, from something that is stronger in us. God says, I'm going to give you the strength and the power. As a matter of fact, I'll just do it myself to purge you from your own idols. That that's why we need to surrender to Christ. Because on our own, we build up idols. Okay, okay Brandon, I, I, don't have, I don't have any idols in my home. I, what are you talking about? Yes, we serve the idols of comfort, the idols of security, the idols of money, 
That, that's what we, those are the idols that we serve now. What is it that would drive you crazy if you lost today? That's what happens when we are in control. That's what he means by the work of our hands. We create idols. And God says, through this promised ruler, I'm going to purge you of all of that. You will be purified. Remember, Christ is coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. God will remove all idols. They will no longer be a struggle for us. Verse 15 says, in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. One thing, two things, and I'm gone. We learn here that God is emotional, anger, and then the actual display of his anger is his wrath. We don't like that side of God. The only God we want to know or the only God we want to remember is the God who is loving and generous and kind. Some theologians have argued that the sum of all of God's attributes is his holiness. God being holy means that he's sinless. He's perfect. There's no one like him. Holy means that God cannot tolerate sin, breaking his law. And so what makes God angry is God's people not living according to his holy standard. So that's why God is angry. That's why God is wrathful. Because there's sin in the land. And what Micah has said, the sin has led to injustice in the land. Micah said it, not Brandon. And injustice anywhere makes God angry and wrathful. You can come on up here, buddy. God says that his vengeance will be executed on those that did not obey. What God expects from his people is worshipful obedience. When Christ came, I'm still on my Christmas sermon, it was in obedience to his father. And so those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, what is expected of us is worshipful obedience. We don't obey to get anything from God. No, we, we, we obey because we love God. Obedience is the demonstration of our love and our worship of our most holy God. The reason some people don't like Christianity is because they've gotten it twisted to think that all I got to do is obey all these rules, all these laws, all these regulations, and then I'll be right with God. And that is so not the gospel. We cannot on our own be obedient to a most holy God. What we do is we create idols. It's in the text. 
So God has to put his spirit within us that empowers us and enables us to obey every command of Christ. So then what Christmas should remind us of, what, what Christmas should do for us is call us to survey our daily walk with Christ and say, have I been obedient to this shepherd king? Worship team, you can come back. Thank you.